Stinbridges and Adam Davis are two members of the Herbivorize Predators movement. I asked them if it's a movement, and they agreed that it is a movement. Yes, you heard that correctly. Herbivorize Predators. So, if you're going to listen to this podcast, you have to listen to this podcast with an extremely open mind. I came into it, as you would expect, very open-minded myself. I wanted a dialogue. I did not want a denigrating shouting match. I just wanted to hear their perspective, ask them some tough questions, and really just boil down like why they believe what they believe and how they believe they're going to execute it. And I think what you'll find at the end of the conversation is that, number one, they're highly intelligent. Number two, they have thought through exactly what they're looking for. Number three, they don't want this to happen tomorrow. They believe that this is going to happen over tens of thousands, hundred thousands of years from an evolutionary perspective. But the research is needed right now to begin that path and to begin that journey. Again, listen to it with an open mind. You'll certainly take something away from it. And if I didn't get to any of the questions and you got frustrated with me in like pushing back, know that that wasn't the kind of conversation I was interested in. I wanted to have an open book conversation to hear from them. So, enjoy. So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple. Is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to to non-hunters that it's it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name. My name. Is, <laughs> Does my hair look okay? It's fantastic. My name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. <laughs> Braxton, you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Hmm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be, and a, a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. I was telling Stin that um, I'm drinking coffee this morning, 5.30 in the morning. Me too. Uh, but I should be drinking whiskey. Yes. Because I think that this conversation is going to require, should be like a whiskey type drinking type <laughs> conversation. <Yeah. laughs> I've been looking forward to it. I know, um, I know, uh, I think some of your, your friends and viewers and listeners might have some reservations, but I've been really looking forward to it because I, I do enjoy debates and conversations and I enjoy talking to people who are, who have, who uh, have uh, views that are, uh, seemingly opposite to mine, but I'm sure. I think um, they, uh, things can be uh, uh, bridges can be crossed, and we can maybe find some uh, some things we might agree on. Um, oh, no, I enjoy, I enjoy no, conversations I th- and debates, so I've been looking forward to it. And thank you for asking us. Yeah, for, the, for asking us both to come on in the invitation. It's uh, it's really I enjoy. Oh no, I I think it's a. I think it's an amazing opportunity to have some really good, hard-hitting dialogue. We're all scientists, 
and we all like to sort of pick and think and whatnot, and that's why we're in the field that we're in. Mm-hmm. Um, so without like let's just let's just break open this egg a little bit, and I'll let you guys introduce yourselves. Um, I I wanted to have you guys on. You guys are uh, some of the individuals that are leading the the movement, and maybe you can correct me if you, I'm wrong in terms of calling it a movement um, called herbivorize, which is herbivorizing predators in this world. Uh, so Adam and Stin, welcome to the Blood Origins podcast. I'm excited for this conversation. Um, Thank you. Adam, why don't I let you introduce yourself first, and then Stin, you can introduce yourself after Adam's finished. Yes, perfect. Thank you, Robbie. Um, yeah, thank you. Uh, my name is uh, Adam. I uh, I live in, in Nottingham in England. Um, I have uh, been very interested in suffering-focused ethics um, for a very long time. Uh, I mean, I'm 33, but uh, I've been into this philosophy, and you're correct, it is a movement since I was about um, early to mid uh, teenage years. Um, uh, I, I wouldn't. I'm actually uh, uh, not a scientist. I'm a, a non-scientist, and um, I wouldn't even really describe myself as uh, um, an an academic. Uh, more of a uh, aspiring, self-taught uh, autodidact. Um, um, I have a very curious mind, very curious brain. Um, blessed to have access to the in, being one of the, the generations to um, first have access to the internet and which is a bit like a, a godsend for someone like myself it's uh, I think the internet is worth um, many hundreds of libraries of Alexandria with all this knowledge and uh, I'm quite a high novelty seeking personality so the internet was uh, like a portal to another world for interesting music and things that are cutting edge and quite out there music or art and philosophy too um so eventually i came across um this movement i i, I like to use the term uh, suffering abolitionism which you you read in our in biographies or the abolition of, of suffering it's something that so uh, it was a defining moment in my life first discovering it it was a quite a paradigm shift um biggest influence is another fellow Brit, David Pierce, who's a, a philosopher, lives in Brighton. He's, he's the main godfather of um, suffering-focused ethics. Uh, he, he was one of the big pioneers uh, who kind of like uh, laid the foundations for, for the, the, the movement today. Um, but no, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not a scientist. I'm uh, not really an academic. I don't really... Um, higher education was quite honestly a bit of a shambles. I'm more of a, uh, uh, a writer, a, a proofreader, a thinker, a speaker, and um, an enthusiast and a debater. Uh, so uh, I'm just a person with a uh, with a curious mind, with a, a passion for uh, ideas like this. And I'm very lucky awesome. to have found fellow travellers like Stan, um, who I'll pass the baton over to. Awesome. All right, thanks, Adam. Um, so a bit about my background. Um, I consider myself as an environmentalist, an animal rights activist, um, currently an effective altruist. Um, 
At the moment, I work at the University of Leuven in Belgium as an economist, a research assistant. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if we've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when I heard that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, what's the catch? But after talking to them, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com waypoint. That's mintmobile.com waypoint. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com waypoint. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Um, I did a PhD a long time ago in physics, and about 10 years ago, a second PhD in moral philosophy. Um, and that PhD in moral philosophy was about uh, animal ethics, um, animal rights, and so on. And in those days, 10 years ago, um, I kind of uh, defended uh, predation, um, um, like valuing naturalness and biodiversity, and therefore predation contributes to these values and therefore should be preserved, kind of. Um, after my PhD, um, I changed my mind about um, um, this topic about predation. Um, it's, one, it's one of the many things I changed my mind about the past 10 years. <laughs> um, and so a few years ago, I was walking with uh, my dog um, at night and there were chickens hidden um, on the side of the road. I didn't see them, but my dog catched one of the chickens. Um, and um, um, so I was uh, shocked to see that chicken dying, um, causing suffering. But then um, I went home and I don't know how, but I, um, by pure fate, so to speak, I met, um, I encountered this website, Herbivorized Predators. Um, an hour after I was feeling uh, like, okay, <laughs> um, this predation stuff is terrible. Um, so, and that's how I met Adam, for example, and other people. Um, gotcha. And that's got probably. So, who started herbivorized predators then? A few people. Um, some of them also want to remain anonymous. Um, um, okay. But yeah, you can see at their websites. And as Adam said, um, People um, most inspired and started it. Um, David Pierce is the name um, in the literature. Um, you can think of uh, um, a philosopher Jeff McMahon um, who in an, um, wrote about it also, I guess, about ten years ago. Um, some other people, um, Carl Johansson, also in his recent book about um, wild animal suffering, also mentions this idea that. It could be possible to turn predators into into herbivores. Um, it basically started with the idea that with uh, gene editing and you know the the CRISPR technology, um, that realization that you can um, change animals. Um, and for me personally, it's it also started with um, the realization that many herbivores are herbivorized predators. The famous example is the panda bear. Um, belongs to the order of carnivora, um, but now eats bamboo. <laughs> um, so apparently, by nature, by blind evolution, it is possible to turn 
carnivorous animals, um, the ancestors of the panda bear, into um, herbivores. Do we have any other examples, Adam, beyond the giant panda, beyond the red pandas, beyond the spectacle bears, of any carnivorans becoming herbiv herbivores? Or are those just the only three examples out there? Because I couldn't find many more than those. And still, maybe yeah, recently know. we found many more <laughs> examples. Um, a few weeks ago, we um, there was a study even with dinosaurs <clears throat> that you know the some famous dinosaurs, Triceratops, Diplodocus, um, their ancestors apparently were also hunters, meat eaters, um, carnivorous animals. Um, we found examples of uh, lizards that are, are herbivores. Um, so even with the, the, the rep amongst reptiles, um, we haven't found examples of amphibians yet, I guess. Um, with birds, plenty of examples, a lot of um, seed eating birds at ancestors. I mean, birds, they descend from the dinosaurs and they, they descend from mm -hmm, insectivores mm -hmm. and, and, and even yeah, um, carnivore uh, ancestors. Um, but now a lot of those birds, they are um, yeah, eating um, yeah, fruits and seeds and so on. And, and um, mm -hmm. So you can, I guess, uh, we expect to, to find examples in all kinds of um, branches in, in evolution. Yeah. Adam, anything to add there? Uh, no, no, uh, Sten, Sten covered, covered those, mate. And also, also yeah, yeah, humans as well. <laughs> It's, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Humans. It, uh, it's, uh, it sounds like uh, I know a, a lot of people say this. Um, these ideas sound like uh, science fiction, um, uh, but um, <laughs> to paraphrase Buddha, you know, may all beings be free from suffering, and uh, and even even in the in the Bible, there is talk of lions laying down with the lambs. Um, so I will. Um... I put out the fact that I was going to podcast with you guys to our audience. Naturally, it is a hunting-based audience. It's a hunting community. There's a lot of non-hunters in there, but there's a lot of people that um, are very keen and interested and, and are curious-minded, just like you guys are. Um, and so I asked them, do they have any questions for you guys? And I've got... I, I, I threw the trash away, okay? <laughs> I threw the rubbish questions away. Um, and I picked up the Thank ones you. that were very um, scientifically related, that would, would be almost questions that I would ask um, as you move through this, like, movement. Um, and so I really just wanted to sort of have this conversation. I wanted to put some very hard questions on the table, see how you guys responded, how you answer it. Um, you've obviously thought through this a lot more than I have. Um, yes, there certainly are carnivorans that are herbivores, which is quite interesting to sort of theorize, like why they decided to move from being a carnivore to a herbivore. But from a premise perspective, that the, it's happened. It, you know, you have a panda that is should be a carnivore, purely living on you know succulent bamboo, essentially. Um, so let me let me just start. I don't even know. Uh, the question that I will that I'll start with, but let me just start with sort of the basic tenets of life. All right, basic tenets of life: survival and reproduction, essentially from a biology perspective. Do you, if we were to change carnivores to herbivores, 
there's going to be certain things that will also have to change. Um, one of which is almost the phenotype of what that animal looks like, right? So let's use a cheetah, for example. If a cheetah was to become a herbivore through any sort of gene manipulation, um, I, I don't know who I'll throw this to, Stin, maybe, let me start with Stin. What was that? What would that cheetah look like? Because that cheetah is built. I don't know. <laughs> to kill. Um, it could look very different. Um, it could slowly evolve towards something very different. What we can expect is like, okay, the teeth would be um, more, um, yeah, other shape of teeth. Um, the intestines would be longer. Um, probably the cheetah would be um, slower in these things. Um, but yeah, it's like, um, with the panda bear, you can try to guess, like if you look at the ancestor of the panda bear um, and then asking a question, what would that look like? Or let's say the triceratops. Huh? Uh, the triceratops, dinosaur, um, had a carnivorous ancestor. Um, yeah, um, it evolved to something totally different. Yeah, the long-necked dinosaurs also, I mean, mm -hmm. I don't know <laughs> how they're going to mm -hmm. look like. Um, mm -hmm. um, so... But Adam, is that what is that what we want? Do we want things to look differently because of this change? Yeah, when you when you asked asked a question, you raised quite a uh, quite a, an important detail. I think, um, uh, yeah, obviously one of the ideas that that we have is um, changing, like the the, the 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 predator, the carnivore, the hunter, but um, uh, another. Kind of alternative idea that we also talk about and consider and explore is uh, not not interfering with that um, organism per se itself, but um, leaving it alone and then maybe changing something uh, in in the in the environment uh, that would kind of um, uh, meet some of the ethical goals that we aim for, like. Uh, um, Using the cheetah as an example, not interfering with anything to do with the cheetah, but um, uh, maybe feeding it uh, lab-grown meat uh, where mm. nothing had to suffer in, in order for mm. uh, the, the cheetah to get that that nourishment. Um, one 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 of my favorite ideas is uh, um, building um, kind of like uh, or, or automata that simulate the prey. Um, and kind of out, <laughs> outfitting that automaton with uh, uh, like the lab-grown meat, and then programming it to behave like uh, a gazelle or whatever, and, and and letting the cheetah have fun with that. <laughs> so that's another kind of I think important detail. So I think people uh, um, sometimes. Uh, I mean, obviously, one of the ideas is uh, is is changing the the predators but also changing something in the environment in the ex external world surrounding the hunter uh, that's another idea we kind of explore i expect uh how do how does know, that um Go ahead, sorry, to answer your question um i expect it would be something like a transition from the wolves to the dogs um if you ask uh then how long has that taken evolutionary for about ten thousand that... years or something <laughs> um that's people first okay domesticated um, the first wolves um but if you look at the yeah. um if you start with a prototypical wolf 
and now try to imagine how can you turn it into some other animals. Um, now we see many different uh, dog breeds, um, a, a totally different. I mean, from Chihuahua to big uh, <laughs> shepherds, and, and they look so different um, with um, ears in different shapes and, and all. Um, but that's possible, I mean, uh, with uh, starting from wolves. Huh? Um, and now you, you can see, ask a question like, what does a dog look like? Um, and now you probably have a, an image of a dog in your head, but I can show you easily a dog that total, looks totally different. It's much smaller with shorter legs and whatever you have, but it's still, a, you would call it a dog. Sure. So sure, um, sure, sure. if you ask me, what would a predator look like, like a cheetah? Yeah, um, that's like uh, asking what would a, a dog look like? Um, yeah, um, <laughs> the Chihuahua from uh, to um, the Dalmatian, the colors are different, the tails 100%. are different, and no. um, and that's a great. I think that's a that's a pretty good that's a pretty good analogy. Um, let me ask this. Maybe I should have asked this from a, a sort of basic, foundational question. Let me see if I, I ca can capture this appropriately, and you correct me. Herbivorized predators at its core is interested in reducing the untimely death and suffering of animals as a result of predators correct or incorrect yeah, that sounds good yeah i mean a lot of um, a lot of deaths in the world are not instant they're very it can be very long and drawn out and could take hours of it could take hours for uh, something uh, Something to die. Um, days. What about, yeah, days. What about the suffering tied to end of life? How is that any different than the suffering tied to a predator? Is there a distinction? I think um, when making the analogy to humans, um, you can say, okay, dying from starvation or dying from a predator attacking you, what would you prefer? Um, I met different people having different answers. Um, but here the question is like um, a premature death from a predator versus a longer life with at the end of your life, you die from something, from a disease or then um, hunger or whatever. Um, I think most people would, um, if they would see a predator, they would now avoid um, the predator. Um, they don't want to be killed. Huh? That does not mean that they say like, um, okay, actually I prefer dying from starvation. <laughs> um, so let me die from starvation because I'm running away from the lion. <laughs> um, I guess it's the same with, with animals. They are, of course, um, kind of, let's say, indifferent between the way they die, but they don't want to die at this moment. This zebra that's running away at that moment does not want to die, um, does not want to be chased. Um, and um yeah in that sense the premature death from killing the animal is um is a problem um i think um one of the the guiding principles uh we can use uh, could basically be uh, described as uh, well one one can one can be certain that no one wants to be eaten if you if you ask any random person on the street would you like to be eaten or or go even further, would you ever like to be eaten alive? Do you want to be eaten alive? I would bet money that they would all say no. Uh, 
Um, no. Does uh, Stan want to be eaten? I can answer for him. No. And I'm very com confident that I can answer on behalf of all people, or almost all people. No one, or, or almost no one, humans, people like us, would ever want to be eaten alive in, in the ways which happen every day in the wild. Um, of course, there are exceptional circumstances, like, say, acts of self-sacrifice, and hypothetically and rather fantastically, if I was in a situation where my family were in great danger and the only way to save them and ensure their safety would be to sacrifice myself to be eaten alive by some great beast and I would, but mm -hmm. the, the exception proves the rule, really, is that kind of self-sacrifice mm -hmm. would be a terrifying, mm -hmm. truly terrifying ordeal. Um, but in most, if not all, non-exceptional circumstances, no one would ever want to be eaten alive. Are we um, are we putting an anthropomorphic construct on animals with this viewpoint, though? Like, obviously, a, a human clearly does not want to get eaten alive, right? Clearly. But, you know, prey have evolved in this sort of, this evolutionary race between prey and predator, right? Prey gets better at it, predators get better. Predators get better, prey get better at evading the predators. It's this evolutionary arms race, essentially, in terms of their evolutionary structure. Mm. Mm. And sure, uh, you know, there's going to be certain prey taken, but for the vast majority, there's not. Just like humans. Some, some humans are going to get knocked over by a bus. Some students will make it to the end. Um, is the suffering construct that they don't want to get eaten, is it, in, is it an anthropomorphic structure or are we just sort of seeing them fleeing? I, I, help me wrap my head around that. Stin, maybe you yeah. can start. Um, it's a good question. Um, so my biggest concern is that I would be projecting my own values and preferences onto others and then do something to others against their will. Huh? Um, so I want to avoid that. Um, and... Concerning um, wild animals, um, looking at their behavior and their similarities to to me personally, um, they have brains, they have the same um, 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 neurons and so on. Um, when I'm scared, when I look at a predator hunting me, um, I can imagine that a zebra also feels that kind of thing. Um, we have uh, the common uh, um, ancestors, um, we have all evolved uh, to having these feelings, uh, we see have the same behaviors and so on. Um, so I can reasonably expect that indeed a zebra feels fear, does not um, want to be um, um, uh, um, chased by a lion. That's not simply a reflex or a, a robot <laughs> running away from the lion, but really as this wanting not to be hunted, like uh, how it feels like. Um, I can perhaps imagine like in a dream. In a dream, I'm also not so very um, um, cognitive or, or uh, conscious, I mean, huh? um, but I remember dreams when I'm chased by something and I really feel scared. And I'm not thinking about death and mortality and, oh, I'm going to marry and now I cannot marry because I'm, <laughs> I'm being killed and so on. And then all these kind of uh, what happens after death and so on. Um, in, a, in my dream, I'm not aware of mortality. But I'm simply don't want to be chased by this tiger in my dream. I can mm -hmm. imagine the the same happens with zebra. Um, it, it does not um, have these uh, thoughts like you know, um, I'm going to die um, and what happens after death and uh, my loving ones will miss me and then all these things. No, uh, but the zebra I think um, feels fear. Um, 
so that's the, the um, um, even, and that's an important thing also, the, the predator himself has these same feelings and preferences. The predators, you constantly see it, that they themselves run away from top predators. Uh, take a predator and... I was uh, just about to say yeah, that. Um, yeah. So even, even if there's a mesa predator, a fox or something, um, very hungry, starving, huh? um, and now this fox is chased by a wolf. Um, now what does the fox do? Running away instead of give me some euthanasia because I don't want starving, <laughs> um, kill me, um, that is soon over. No, uh, um, even the wolf, uh, the, the fox has this um, fear of um, um, the, the wolf um, does not want predation, even if the fox himself <laughs> hunts others. Uh, mm. So is there a, Adam, maybe you can help me here. To me, there seems like there's a missing gap here. The missing gap being that yes, you can see the behavior, you can see the you can see the fleeing behavior, the evasion behavior, um, even sort of vocal bleating when taken. Hmm. But to sort of transcend the gap to say that that then translate to quote unquote suffering and pain like we experience, like humans experience. Yes, the neural networks may be there, everything may be there, but we just don't know, right? Because and the way that the way that I see it sometimes is I've seen white-tailed deer, I've seen zebra with massive, massive wounds. Oh, yeah. Like, almost yeah. like a backstrap removed zebra with like claw marks down their backs. If we were projecting the same sort of idea of suffering that we as humans have onto that, there is no way that that animal is operating the way that they are operating without limping and suffering mm. and bleating and sitting down and whatnot. But these animals, they don't exhibit any of that. They just go about their day like it's normal. So oh, how, how, help me yeah. with this gap. Help me with this gap that I, I'm struggling with that you might have already figured out. I think there's a, a dangerous reasoning. Um, we've seen in war situations, soldiers who really keep on fighting even when they are shot and, and bleeding and whatever, and they still go on. I mean, we see it um, with um, athletes and, and, and we still keep running the marathon with the broken. <laughs> I mean... Um, yeah, but I can see that in the moment. Absolutely. 100% and I can see that in the moment. But what about after the moment? Because that's when your adrenaline dumps and all of a sudden we have pain, right? Yeah, and then I think uh, with the animals we see um we see limping and we see them taking care of their wounds and um i can imagine for me when i am um when i'm wounded um at first sight uh, um in, in a dangerous situation i'm not um, looking at my wound and i'm uh, um, and afterwards i start feeling the pain and uh, really the the hours and weeks of pain afterwards um i can imagine the same happens with the animals uh, but that does not justify the fact that i mean um can say like okay um you can shoot me or or uh, harm me <laughs> um and then um so um i don't think it's anthropomorphizing very much in the sense that um it's it would be weird that only that all humans and only humans have this property of thinking that this um wounds um from the bite uh, 
is painful and, and it's not wanted. Um, and that mm -hmm. the non-humans, they don't care that much about their wounds and, and their um, yeah, being chased and so on. Um, that would be very strange because, I mean, how did, did that work in evolution? When was in looking at our ancestors? And, um, when was this first ancestor born that really is a human, first human, and that had this idea like, I really don't want this wound. Huh? I really don't want the line. <laughs> Uh, there's something more than a zebra feels when the zebra is hunted and when I'm hunted by a lion. For me, it's worse than for zebra. Uh, um, that would be very weird. Who would be that first ancestor of us uh, um, who had this first thought or feeling or preference? Um, so that's why I expect that um, animals are very similar, um, similar to us and particularly similar to, let's say, toddlers, children, young children. I mean, they are not concerned indeed about their far future lives and, and mortality and, and this abstract knowledge of death. But as with children, um, yeah, um, they, they have mechanisms to cope with pain, um, but um, they are limited and children don't want to be hunted and killed and, and, and um, bitten by whatever. Um, and the same, I think, happens with animals. Mm -hmm. I, w I would say um, cries of pain and suffering are universal, and we, we don't, we don't, uh, we, could, we could argue that um, animals are maybe a little bit lower in sentience and sapience, but um, we don't know if animals suffer more um than us because of this or less because of this because they have a, a, maybe a bit lower on the scale of sapience and sentience which is one of the great dilemmas but it's best not to take the chance in case they are um uh suffering even a, a little bit it's better to do to care about them and be wrong rather than not care and just let them suffer and i just wanted to go back to the um the anthrop uh, anthropocentrism um, topic. Uh, I, I, I'd like to defend anthropocentrism. I believe it, it is a tool, a gift, a, a privilege, to, um, a creative and philosophical toolkit rather than a negative characteristic. Um, we, we humans are quite lucky and fortunate, very lucky and fortunate, you could say, relatively. Of course, we humans are faced with a multitude of sufferings of many, many different kinds of suffering from a multitude of sources and for a variety of many different reasons every day from birth to death. But Predation or being predated on isn't one of them, not really. Well, not anymore. To our distant ancestors, yes, it was a different story, but not anymore, not now, unless you're in certain parts of the world. And certainly not on the same scale as uh, our mammals, all the other mammals, animals, all the different megafauna, insects, and so on, if at all. You know, fortunately for us, and unfortunately, very unfortunately for the lower life forms, being predated on is a daily reality for them, and it has been for millions, billions of years. And, will continue for just as long, if not longer, without the kind of human ingenuity and daring that gives birth to such ideas as suffering abolitionism or wild animal suffering intervention, as radical as they may be, and the gumption to put these ideas into practice and make them a reality. Um, for all the hardships that we humans face, we do have the luxury of living our daily lives without ever having to worry about becoming stuck in a giant spider's web, being before being wound up and tied up and then eaten by a spider as big to us as spiders are to flies. Uh, 
I, I watched mm-hmm. that scene from the original The Fly movie from the <laughs> 1950s where he gets caught in a web and he cries out, help me, help me. And people think it's funny. <laughs> well, it is a little bit, but that's a funny scene. People think it's hilarious, but uh, it all horrified me. And again, with spiders, we can live our lives free of the fear of being pulled into a hole in the ground by a giant trapdoor spider. We don't have to worry about stepping into larger scale Venus flytraps or falling down larger scale pitcher plants. For me, sorry, perhaps one more note about anthropomorphism. For me, that's uh, there's a kind of arbitrariness in this idea of anthropomorphism. Um, because, yeah, you can say um, I'm a human, and if I think someone else is similar to me, um, then that's anthropomorphizing. But I'm also a primate. Huh? I'm Humans belong to the order of primates. So you can also say I'm primatomorphism. <laughs> I'm a mammal also. I'm a, um, so when I think that someone else feels like me, um, I could say someone else feels like a mammal or like a primate. So um, I'm also a white person. I'm a, so, um, a white human. Um, <laughs> am I now, um, yeah, racomorphism? <laughs> I don't know how to call it, but um, all I can tell is there's only one person that I know for sure that is sentient and has preferences and feelings, and it's me. And then I infer from um, other people like you, um, are you sentient? Yeah, you you look like me, um, but not necessarily in the sense that you are a human because um, you also look like me in the sense that you are a primate. Um, you are also primate. You, we are all here primates. We're all mammals. So you look like me as a primate, as a mammal, as a human. We're all, all um, white people. <laughs> um, so... Um, but what does it mean if um, to say that you look like me? I would say like um, the important thing is: do you have um, um, evidence um, that you are sentient, like with uh, neurons, brains, um, having a behavior, having a physiology? Um, and then I can infer: infer, um, okay, um, I see when I'm pain, then my brain part here works. When you are in pain, then the same brain part works. When a zebra is in pain. We see the same parts uh, working and the same hormones and the same physiological reactions um, as uh, um, as with me. So um, I'm inferring on that, but um, I don't need to know whether I'm a human to to make this this leap of faith huh? to to know that you're uh, uh, that you both element. Um, if you are um, um, to know that you're sentient, I don't need to check whether you're human. I don't need to know whether your ancestors were human and whether your genealogy and the evolution is in the correct species. Um, when you behave and look like me and with brains and so on, that's, the, the, for me, the relevant information. Um, mm-hmm. I don't need mm-hmm. to know whether you're a primate <laughs> as well. Gotcha. Well, let me ask this question um, as we sort of transition to sort of the next sort of topic around this. Since, obviously, there's been a lot of time geological time and evolution that has happened on this world to to establish us establish other animals establish habitats establish um all sorts of adaptations why has the i guess the premise of herbivorize why is the idea of suffering not evolved through the the time span that we've seen you know time in memoriam essentially um and i'll maybe let me add another thing on top of that it's very clear that the idea of ethics 
does not exist in the animal kingdom. It's obviously what we see is, you know, this is, you know, killing babies, unethical, totally normal in an animal kingdom. So why has suffering and the idea of ethics not evolved over geologic time, over all of this time spent in the animal kingdom? Adam? Sorry, could you... Could and you... you could tell me if that's not a fair or an unfair question. Maybe it's just me trying to rattle through my brain, like... Could Say you, that again, Adam. Sorry, I cut you Could you ask off. the question again? Sorry. Well, the question... Yeah. So the premise of herbivorize is ending the suffering, untimely suffering and death of animals, which suggests that maybe this idea should have... You know, why hasn't it evolved on its own? Why hasn't the, re the reduction of suffering happened on its own? Why has, why has ethics not come into play in the animal kingdom? I think, um, I think that's because that's a responsibility that's, uh, that falls on, on us, on our shoulders and, and um, our, our descendants. Um, I think um, it's like when, let me just uh, think of a, yeah, uh, then jump um, in if you want. Yeah, um, to have uh, individuals um, um, more capable of um, moral cognition and reflection, that takes a lot of brain power, <laughs> basically. Um, so it's um, in that sense, it's it's obvious that um, not many um, life forms evolved into beings who can morally reflect because. You have to be able to put yourself in the position of someone else and um, make abstractions and all these things. Um, and evolution itself or nature itself doesn't care about ethics or suffering. And that's a blind process of things evolving and surviving. But it's a, it does not have an intention like, now let's work towards an ecosystem where the animals are happy and then build their welfare. And in order to do so, let's um, let the animals evolve towards... Um, Beings like us, like me and you, um, who can think ethically, who can put ourselves in the position of someone else, who can have something like a golden rule, uh, do not unto, do unto others what you do not want to do to you. <laughs> um, that's uh, the golden rule, that's everyone, um, we all accept it, um, but that's a difficult rule to, to evolve uh, because you um, really have to some, yeah, be able to go. But isn't, isn't what you're just saying though, the missing piece there is no that that higher cognitive power that higher understanding is not yeah, um, evident is not present in the animal kingdom and as such isn't the idea that we're saying quote unquote the suffering that we want to get rid of it's it's not present there so why do we need to get rid of it yeah um for me it's uh, one of the things that i changed my mind about um so as I said in the beginning, 10 years ago, I did a PhD um, in animal ethics. Um, I defended predation uh, with the idea like um, I value um, biodiversity and naturalness and predation contributes to biodiversity and its natural process in pristine nature and the integrity of an ecosystem is important. And um, if something evolved, in, um, an ecosystem evolved to uh, having predation that's natural and therefore permissible or good or whatever has to be preserved. Um, now, looking back at this, um, 
all these values, um, the, the reasons that I gave why uh, we should not herbivorize predators, why we should have um, 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 conservation of predation, um, those reasons, these are all moral reasons, but particularly um, nature itself doesn't care about these reasons. Ecosystems themselves Correct. don't care about animal welfare, right? But they also don't care about naturalness or biodiversity. An ecosystem, Yellowstone, and now uh, is not uh, ecosystem. The ecosystem of Yellowstone does not experience a change when the wolves were reintroduced, and now it, it affects the biodiversity and so on. That ecosystem is not aware of what is biodiversity, what is um, um, I have a preference for biodiversity <laughs> or things like that. So. Um, so basically, these preferences of naturalness, um, integrity, um, pristineness, um, biodiversity, these values, um, these were values that I have. And I, I see, when I look at nature, I see the, the beauty and the stability of the ecosystem. Um, but nature itself doesn't care about these things that um, I see. Um, it's like with a painting in uh, I, um, the Mona Lisa. Huh? Um, I see it's beautiful and so on, an aesthetic uh, value and things like that, authenticity. Da Vinci painted it. It's in the real authentic art, uh, this value of authenticity. But that painting itself, uh, that, 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 that piece of wood, <laughs> doesn't care about authenticity or beauty or whatever that Da Vinci himself <laughs> painted it. Or, um, and on, in contrast, um, welfare. Um, so I can. Um, uh, value your welfare, Rob. Huh? Um, is it anthropomorphic to value your welfare? No, not in a sense, because it, um, I'm not projecting my own values on you, because you yourself value your own welfare. So when I value the welfare of an animal, that animal itself values its own welfare as a preference and so on, and wants higher um, do things to have higher welfare. How do we know that? That that's the key, right there. What you just said. How do we know that? Because you, I thought you said before that the they're not cognitive. They're not, you know, in terms of their cognitive power, brain capacity. Yes. Um, all the things that separate humans and animals. How do we know in, that? In, as again with with a dream. Um, when I in a dream, um, I don't have this idea that I value my welfare. That's not in my head, but. When I'm chased by a lion in my dream, I um, feel that it's not good for my welfare. I feel feared, and I don't want to feel fear, and I want to fly around and and and, and have nice things in, in, in my dream instead of having this feeling. So um, with welfare, I, I, I mean, um, in, in a dream, I also value my welfare um, in a sense like um, I have feelings, positive and negative feelings, and I want more positive feelings. Even though I do not have this conscious thought that in this dream now I want to have more positive feelings, <laughs> um, I simply want more positive feelings in my dream. That's why I, so I can say in my dream, I also value my welfare in my dream. Even if I'm as stupid as an animal <laughs> uh, and I'm not able to have this abstract thoughts like, yeah, but what is welfare actually? Uh, what does it mean, positive feelings? And uh, no, no. <laughs> um, I want just to enjoy life. Adam, I believe to try and answer your question, the next stage in evolution is, is up to us. It falls on our shoulders and it requires our ingenuity and creativity. We can't 
we can't just leave it to nature forever because um, uh, something will just go on and on and on. We're, and we are part of nature anyway. So this project, you could argue, is still part of natural evolution, you could say. And because nature doesn't doesn't care, we have to. And so we're, we have to step in, fill in the gaps ourselves. So um, yeah. that's a great segue. Um, and maybe I'll, I'll sort of lump all of the next questions sort of into one, because I think Stin already described it when the, with using the wolf and the dog example. A lot of people had questions around habitat implications, social behavior implications. Um, how do we look at sort of the maintenance of pressure on habitats? Because now you're obviously going to have a much larger trophic level that is adding more pressure to a lower trophic level. Mm. What about greenhouse gas emissions? Um, there's a lot of things that are going to get dialed very differently in the ecosystem because of this idea of removing this, this, this predator level, um, this sort of top-down control on the prey base. Mm. Yeah. So the most important message that I want to give is that we need more scientific research. We can start doing scientific research. We don't know safe and effective ways to intervene in nature to help wild animals, to herbivorous predators, and to avoid prey overpopulation and all the trophic cascades, effects, and so on. Um, we don't know it yet, but um, we're also thinking in, um, in long term. Um, you can imagine, like, uh, let's go back a thousand years ago. Um, people were dying from diseases. Um, people did not know how to cure diseases. Even if you told them, like, yeah, you know, a disease is from these tiny invisible things called microbes, viruses, and so on in your body, billions of them, you can't count them, you can't see them. Um, um, even if they knew this information, then they were laughing at you, like, yeah, what are you going to do? Going to <laughs> pick all one by one a virus out of your body? Yeah, the, um, that's not never going to work. Yeah? Um, so in Instead, what they did was things like bloodletting and, and all kind of praying and, and things that didn't work. Um, you can't blame them mm -hmm. that um, they couldn't cure the disease. The big mistake that they made was um, they could, back then in the medieval period, uh, already start doing scientific research. They did not do that. They refused to do scientific research because they believed these diseases was a message of God. Uh, you you should not um, try to cure them or something. It's natural. Um, it's part of life and so on. So they rationalized diseases. And if they want to cure it, they, they simply thought like, okay, bloodletting will help. And no, it doesn't. <laughs> well, <laughs> they, um, so they could have started with scientific research. If they started scientific research, we would have had the vaccines much earlier and we would not have the problems. Um, so again, with us, I'm thinking about uh, the far future animals over a thousand years or something. Um, I cannot tell you what the solution will be to predation. Like how would we really herbivorous predators, what the animals would look like and how step by step and, and, and how to avoid prey overpopulation and all these things. Um, and as Adam said, like, we are thinking with technologies from now, like Adam, um, 
my first reaction would be like, okay, how to avoid predators without killing the predators? Let's have some robots with uh, cultivated meat running on the savanna, and they are a bit slower than the zebra. <laughs> you know, let me say this. Probably when everyone heard Adam say that earlier, literally uh, everyone just died. Like, uh, oh, my God, that's the craziest <laughs> idea I've ever heard in my life. Uh, Oh, Let's be honest. Comments coming it it, it, it yeah. can be investigated yeah. oh, if it's a crazy on. idea. But, um, <laughs> Holy smokes, but, how do you put that in the middle yeah. of freaking nowhere <laughs> Africa? Imagine, imagine <laughs> that's the kind of response like going back a thousand years ago and say like these are these invisible things. 100%. I get it. It's I get great, it. Yeah, um, we're thinking with technologies from now. Huh? But I can tell you, we, we, we see technologies it. now, the CRISPR gene editing, for example, that start think like, okay, that could that be a game changer. Um, that could be really like a vaccine, inventing a vaccine. That could be a mm-hmm. game changer. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's do more research about other game changers, immunocontraception to avoid prey overpopulation, for example. Um, also, perhaps with gene editing, you can control the fertility rates of prey. Um, you can change also plants to be more digestible for some new herbivorous predators. You can, I mean, um, the Nature itself doesn't care about the destruction of plants, and you you should not tangle with plants in this way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Adam, what if what if your research or your thought processes discovered that this idea of herbivorizing predators is actually bad for humans at the end of the day? Like in terms of its like knock on effects through the ecosystem, knock on effects for the planet, knock on effects for climate change yeah this is this is um this highlights the importance of uh of, of research and not um taking on uh something uh large large scale too too early too quickly um ideally we would uh construct a like a miniature ecosystem in like a, a biodome and uh, observe what happens when we put Biodome, uh, I... by the way, best movie ever. Oh, yeah, I think I've seen it a, few, a, a long time. Oh, no, ago. you need to watch it if you haven't yeah, watched it. It's uh, but and of course, uh, un- unforeseen consequences, uh, are well, in, 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 inevitable, really. Um, but that doesn't mean we, we shouldn't try, uh, and when 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 Stan was talking, um, he he touched upon a, a controversy and controversy and anti-suffering go hand in hand as we, as we all well know, rather mystifyingly, but understandable at the same time. You know, right now we are in an age of accelerating exponential growth, but we can see patterns going back all through history, going way back. Opium and opiates were and still are used as painkillers, but not only as painkillers, but also for other uses as well. And, and going forward to just a few centuries ago, anesthesia was discovered and used for patients undergoing surgery. So uh, we see what we do is simply the next step or steps in the history of anti-suffering, which is a, a history of more and more advanced and progressing steps that become more groundbreaking and sophisticated and far-reaching each time. Why should anti-suffering suddenly just stop with opioid painkillers or anesthetics or animal rights or anti-torture activism or euthanasia or effective antidepressants. Uh, each time some new anti-suffering development that breaks new ground is rolled out, there is controversy. Going all mm-hmm. the way back again, how many times has opium been banned and its users persecuted for what? 
Um, mm-hmm. Even anesthesia, when that was introduced, people thought it was an affront to nature or God's creation and that a patient suffering while still conscious was noble or ennobling, even if they were having their own limbs amputated. So controversy is nothing new or unexpected to us suffering-focused ethicists. Um, perhaps I can add. Um, to counter those uh, kind of arguments about climate change and so on, we can first note that the predators themselves, let's say the wolves, they are not familiar with climate change, um, for example, and they are not setting their predation rates at such a level that is optimum for to avoid climate change. And they're not going to say like, now we're going to hunt less elk because then more um, um, yeah, um, trees can grow or not. Huh? Um, so you can ask yourself the question like, um, um, if it would be, uh, suppose uh, reducing predation, reducing the predation level on Earth would be, be bad because more greenhouse gas emissions, more climate change because more deforestation, let's say. Huh? Um, then you can ask yourself the question, um, what about the reverse? Um, it's very unlikely that the current level of predation happens to be the optimal level for the climate. Huh? That, um, so if decreasing predation is not good and the current the situation is not the optimal one. Increasing predation would probably be the best for the climate. So if one side, uh, if you're on the road and one direction goes down, the other should go up. Unless by accident you happen to be on the top, but probably we're not at the top of climate um, so, um, 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 stability, for example. So then you can argue, like, would it be a good idea to introduce more predators? Let's say on the islands, uh, there are forests on the islands. Um, these forests are eaten by, uh, in Oceania, for example, huh? um, there are islands, um, and now um, there are herbivores, but they lack predators. So these herbivores, they eat a lot of plants, and there's a lot of greenhouse gas emissions. You can introduce uh, predators so that the herbivores are more um, um, reduced, so there will be more trees on those islands, and those trees absorb CO2 and things like that. Are we going to do that, uh, introducing more predators? Um, and especially with <laughs> um, new predators that can eat humans, because humans <laughs> emit a lot of <laughs> greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, perhaps we should uh, create new predator species, um, reintroduce the Tyrannosaurus rex um, to eat some humans. I think, Stin, I think herbivorized predators should turn to predatorized predators. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, <laughs> we, 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 yeah, yeah, if you say herbivorizing predators would be good, uh, would be bad. Um, what about the reverse? Um, what about predatorizing herbivores? If you also think, uh, mm. um, so if you speak about the benefits of predation, um, it would be pure luck that the current state would be the optimal state in, uh, of, of um, whatever you want uh, in, ter- in terms of um, yeah, animal welfare, climate change, stability, or whatever. Um, so um, there's the famous uh, thought experiment, the reversal test. Uh, um, what's doing the reverse, would that be good? Huh? Um, and if you cannot give a good explanation why, if you say increasing predation is bad and decreasing is bad, so we are now at the, the optimal state of predation, um, then um, that's basically a status quo bias. Um, you have a, a bias for the current situation, the status quo. Um, so for me, that was a, an important thought experiment. Uh, to, to yeah. Or isn't it a thought experiment that you understand that sort of nature is, you know, 
is inherently a balanced type system, right? Yeah. But you but... have all of these interconnected trophic cascades and trophic levels that, that balance each other out, up and down, and through boom and bust cycles. And... But if you see in, in, in nature, the, um, we have evolution. Um, um, a few um, hundreds of millions of years ago, there were fewer, uh, a shorter trophic chain, um, fewer trophic levels. Um, uh, we started with basically the plants and then first herbivores and so uh, um, and it got longer. Huh? Uh, how do we know that the current state in nature, in the oceans, we have now a trophic chain of five levels, eh, from the phytoplankton mm -hmm. to the, the tuna, mm -hmm. the, the white shark. <laughs> um, five trophic levels. Um, how do we know if that's the optimal state? Why not add one more uh, a predator that can hunt the white sharks? Eh? Um, a, a top, top predator, <laughs> like we had in, in, in the past in the dinosaurs and, and the mosasaurus, <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, for example. Um, why not introduce... But why would we, why would, maybe the question here, Adam, to get back to what you guys are interested in doing, why would we as a human need to change that trophic cascade? Well, I, I, was, I, was, just, I was just thinking that... Um... What uh, you described uh, the system and all the trophic levels, and yeah, it's um, it is a, a balancing act, and um, <clears throat> things would need to be calculated very, very, uh, very carefully, of course. But um, an another idea in like futurism and futurology, and uh, I, I, I don't like to use the word transhumanism anymore because it's become a bit of a a dirty word recently, you know, with Klaus Schwab <laughs> and World Economic Forum. So I'll, I'll just stick to futurism. One one other idea is um, enhancing our own intelligence, whether that be through, uh, again, genetic manipulation or psychopharmaceuticals or um, something like uh, Neuralink or merging with AI somehow. Um, enhanced intelligence might be... Uh, might be needed to be able to calculate all these in, uh, interconnected systems, which might be uh, daunting or too too uh, big of a task for the ordinary human brain, like mine or ours. And and uh, something something Stan uh, you mentioned earlier, uh, you know, predators are prey themselves. Uh, like I said before, we humans are in very privileged circumstances. We have the gift of language and nuanced vocal communication where we can easily telegraph our likes and dislikes our wants and desires fears and phobias i don't want to be eaten and neither do you so let's protect each other and build a mutually beneficial world where we can live in peace free of such fates uh, there how easy was that for me to say but animals etc without such capabilities can't express such personal and individual desires quite so eloquently so the suffering of others is up to us Using the communication analogy, let's say I've been buried alive in a coffin deep underground. I'm screaming, help, I've been buried alive, I don't like this, I don't want this, I hate this. Uh, but I'm so far underground, no one can hear me. But just because no one else hears me saying, I don't like being buried alive, doesn't mean that that statement then becomes untrue. It's the same thing. And just because an animal can't say, I don't want to be eaten alive, word for word, doesn't make it untrue. Um, besides, I think we can use our empathy, our sensitivity, compassion to interpret the sounds and noises like bleating that they do, make whilst being eaten alive as ones of great displeasure, to say the least. Um, mm -hmm. People accuse me and Stan of not caring about nature, but it's precisely because we do care that we want to mobilize projects like uh, HP. or We don't ignore cries for help just because they're not spoken in English or any other language. Mm -hmm. Cries of mm -hmm. pain and something universal. Mm -hmm. um, 
Let me ask this as a sort of a final question. How far do you go from an HP perspective? Are we talking about a lot of questions came in about scavengers, birds of prey, um, fish, ticks, fleas? Definitely the ticks. Like, how far are we going, Stin? Um, for me, um, in, it depends on when. Um, in, I want to go all the way um, to abolish all suffering um, and abolish all. Um, you name it. If someone harms, is there a level in in that um, trophic cascade of a sentence that suffering doesn't occur in, or is it all? Um, all the, the examples that you mentioned, um, supposedly they cause suffering to others. Uh, those animals, the ticks, and so on. So I also want to do something about the ticks and the the parasites and, and um, whatever um, the fish and the, um, and. Um, yeah, in the, in the short run, with scientific research, we can find out what is the safest way to start, where to start. Huh? Um, that's the, the difficult question, where to start. Um, shall we start with species here or there? Or, um, but in the very far future, like um, it's like with diseases, huh? now we have vaccines, and, and I want to apply it against all the diseases, huh? um, all virus diseases. Um, um, the question was, where, uh, which um, disease should we prioritize? Huh? Um, which uh, predator species should we prioritize so we, we can safely, um, effectively herbivorize first? Um, that's the important question. But uh, over, I hope over a few million years or something, um, we have herbivorized everything on Earth and other planets in the galaxy. Um, yeah. Rescue missions <laughs> out in space. Yeah, we, yeah we, we don't... We don't want to limit ourselves to animals necessarily eating other animals. We, we also refer to parasitism and mind-controlling fungi and paralysis, all of which are arguably just as bad, if not even worse, perhaps. Uh, um, but uh, yeah, I can. we never have to worry about the kinds of things that happen to some poor insects when they're taken over by a fungus and you see their corpses are discovered with fungi growing right out of them. Can you imagine something like that happening to us? Because I can. You know, I'm, I'm glad it's not something we have to be concerned about happening to us, but I can imagine it happening to us hypothetically, of course, and I can at least try to imagine what a poor insect goes through in that kind of situation, and I can also empathize with the victims of all the other examples we just listed. And you know, we could, yeah. we, it, mm. we could go. It, I don't think um, complete suffering abolition. Well, hopefully, it will be uh, achieved, but um, yeah. It's, it's something. Uh, it's something. It's a worthy goal to 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 strive for. Um, we already vaccinated wild yeah. animals um, against rabies, for example. And luckily, no one said like, "Yeah, where does it going to stop?" You want to eradicate all these deadly viruses? Um, you should not start um, vaccinating the wild animals against rabies because <laughs> where do you stop? I hope that was not never. Who's vaccinating wild animals against rabies? Yeah, so we eradicated in in the US and in Europe. We almost eradicated rabies in in wild nature because we have. Uh, baits uh, with uh, the vaccine in it and so the the, the foxes and so on mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. they eat uh, these baits and then they get vaccinated and that's how we got uh, rabies almost eradicated in europe and so on. so mm -hmm. that's a good thing but um you could have said like you you cannot eradicate all viruses they are part of nature and and, and where does it stop and then they are going 
you're going also after a SARS virus and and, and Ebola virus, you're going to. Um, um, but yeah, um, um, we keep on looking for more vaccines against more viruses and so on. And the same happens with, with herbivorizing predators. If it works safely, then can safely take the next step. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of people would, you know, it, it's a massive leap, right? From a virus to a predator is is quite an enormous leap in terms of evolutionary time, as you say, Stin, millions of years from now, maybe, you know, that... Yeah, but don't forget the vaccines. The, the, the body is very complex. Huh? Um, in advance, you do not know what a vaccine does to your body. Yeah, you're interfering with a very complex system, your body. Um, but we Correct. managed to in safely, effectively intervene in a very complex body. Um, and also, uh, it affects nature. The, the, what we do with um, um, vaccinating the wild animals, it affects our ecosystems. Um, but still, uh, safely. Um, and with more knowledge in ecosystems, with more knowledge in, in, in biology, we can invent more technologies that can be safely, effectively implemented. Um, the question is, um, should we start doing this research or should we say no, um, because um, we want naturalness and we want the evolution have its way and we want... Um, for me, the, 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 um, going back to your question, Rob, about um, um, Basically, who are we to intervene in nature and so on? Huh? Um, uh, well, that's the basic question, right? It's like we. It, it, I'll say this. Obviously, this, I wanted this conversation to be all about you guys, and you know, from a from a hunting community perspective, one of the things that we get the most sort of pushback on is, "Let Mother Nature be." Yeah. Why are you guys interfering? You know, why do you feel like you need to protect? So, and we have our arguments for why we in, do. in this case um, I think we we um, why we can intervene is it's helping animals um, we uh, improve the welfare the lives of animals um, um, so the animals can reasonably want it if they could speak <laughs> so to speak um, they could say like okay do you want to be saved uh, okay um, that's one thing and and then the the, the second thing is if we would be against these interventions, what reasons can we give to be against these interventions? And then you can say things like uh, referring to values like integrity or naturalness. Um, so we should not intervene because that's unnatural. Um, and then a very tricky thing is these values, naturalness, as I said before, um, these are not the values of nature. These are my values. So that basically mm. means if I say, I'm going to not help those wild animals. I'm going to let them starve. I'm not going to do anything against predation because doing interfering is unnatural. Um, that basically means that my valuation of naturalness, I consider that as more important than what those animals value. They value their, their, their welfare, huh? their feelings. Um, so I'm saying to those animals, look, um, my valuation of naturalness of the natural ecosystem is more important than all your lives and all your suffering and then you killing <laughs> each other. <laughs> um, so, uh, and, and that would, for me, be very arrogant. That's basically the most important thing that uh, I changed my mind about. Um, in my PhD 10 years ago in moral philosophy, I defended this idea of 
naturalness and biodiversity as a having intrinsic value and the beauty and the stability of ecosystems and then the integrity and pristineness and then leave nature alone, that kind of um, value or not playing God eh, like um, the um, But these were my values. Nature doesn't care about playing God or not or naturalness or not. Um, mm. And then I thought like, this is very yeah. arrogant of me to impose my own values mm-hmm. on nature. Mm-hmm. Same, basically mm-hmm. do those animals. I will let you be eaten mm-hmm. and be hunted. Because my aesthetic preference for natural beauty and, and longer trophic change with five levels and I don't know, <laughs> I want an ecosystem with five <laughs> levels uh, of predation. <laughs> um, these are my preferences. Um, and I don't want to impose my preferences on those wild animals. I just wanted to add, um, yeah, the in- interfering with nature counter argument is encountered quite regularly, but I, th- I think it is far too late to use the interfering with nature argument uh, effectively. We are way past the point where interfering with nature holds any uh, weight as a counter argument anymore because we we'll look around. We, we interfere with nature for better or worse all the time, and we have done so already for millennia, and there's no sign of any of that grinding to a halt anytime soon. A clear example is cities. If there is ever an example of humans interfering with nature, then cities are probably the most appropriate example of all that land leveled and flattened and these massive concrete and glass blocks reaching higher than nature's tallest trees, noise and light pollution more intense than anything found in nature and so on. But because they have existed for a long time already, long before all three of us were born, they are normal to us. We are all already used to them. So we don't question them. Many normal people don't even entertain a nature versus urban city dichotomy anymore. Or a city is something separate from nature or something perverse or invasive to nature because we're all used to them already. And cities have even even endeared themselves to people because millions of people find some of the more sophisticated international cities very beautiful in their own way and worth visiting. And interestingly, of course, a lot of great suffering happens in cities, uh, forms of suffering not even found in nature's wildest and most vicious circumstances. So I think that's worth noting. So, as as a, sort of to wrap this up in terms of a fine point, I totally get the interfering in nature uh, argument. From your perspective, from HP perspective, you guys are saying because of the intelligence that we have, and from an animal rights, animal ethicists perspective, we now have a moral obligation to utilize that 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 ethos that moral compass to help shape the future of nature essentially yeah we know how to do science we can invent technologies we can improve ourselves our knowledge um it's reasonable to believe that in a few hundred years or so we can develop technologies that really can herbalize predators or help wild animals in general um if we are so smart and we have um, the reasons to do so because the animals themselves prefer their welfare, um, then you have to give very strong reasons to say, now stop doing this research. We will never ever be allowed to intervene in nature even. Uh, so um, for me, uh, um, we just want to promote the idea to start doing this research on herbivorizing predators. Um, so. When someone says to you, Adam, the intervening, the example you gave, like the robot and the fake meat and whatnot, they would say that that's unnatural. 
intervening right now, interventions in nature is more, you know, in line with the way that Mother Nature operates, the way that systems operate, the, the processes of fire and changing habitats and population structures. What you're suggesting um, with the AI technology, um, I think I saw a, a Twitter thread of sort of microchipping krill and administering first aid when they sense, you know, pain. How do we get over the argument that that seems unnatural or is unnatural to what Mother Nature is? Well, I, I firmly believe that suffering or more accurately trying to free ourselves from suffering and helping to free others from suffering, no matter how small or how large they are, is an important motivational force driving human ingenuity and development forward. Um, of course, there are a number of other driving forces that carry human civilization to more advanced levels and stages. On, on the other end, war is another. War and conflict catalyze technological development. But, but so, in my opinion, so does suffering or finding solutions to suffering to assuage it, to soothe it, to free ourselves and others from it as best we can. I do believe that getting closer and closer to freedom from involuntary suffering for all is a worthy goal. And um, even if we never quite achieve it fully and wholly, it can still act as a target that sits there always in the future, pulling us to it like a great magnet or attractor, one that will still be there in the future, even if we destroy ourselves as, um, mm -hmm. and have to start all over from the beginning again. Mm -hmm. Is uh, maybe the question that keeps coming back into my brain, which is probably one of the first questions I started with Stin is, and Adam just used the word involuntary suffering. Is there, is there, is there more involuntary suffering than voluntary suffering? And is there yeah. definitely I there is think yes. you think there's more involuntary suffering than voluntary suffering? My guess is yes. Um absolutely. There are some examples of voluntary suffering when I'm climbing a mountain and I really want to see the summit, but I'm suffering to uh, I'm willing to um, or I'm going to the dentist. <laughs> um that's kind of um, I was thinking more end of life kind of scenario, like the starvation examples we were talking about, and low, slow, painful deaths. Yeah, that's sort of also the definitely against the world. Slow, painful, painful deaths, yeah. definitely against them. But uh, the thing is, uh, is predation a good uh, euthanasia um, method? Um, so there are people who don't know humans who no longer want to live, huh? um, who ask for euthanasia, for example. And then we can say, I have an invention. Um, it's in the zoo. That's a called a lion. You can sit there and it will eat you. Um, no, that's not what I meant. Um, <laughs> there are better ways for Tunisia. But, um, but yeah, I would <laughs> expect that in, in, in the wild, um, most suffering is involuntary and unwanted suffering. Um, Sometimes I see you, you, there is uh, wanted suffering, like you really want to struggle and, and uh, but oh, maybe it, sorry. Yeah. Maybe maybe I'm I, I misinterpreted. Let me let me say this. I guess maybe I was separating because obviously nobody is voluntarily suffering from starvation. So I need to switch back. Let me change my question. That you're there seems to be 
okay, now that I get my brain straight, it's <sighs> really early in the morning. I'll be going for an hour and fifteen. Where's minutes. the whiskey? <laughs> if there is a, yeah, I didn't. I should have been drinking whiskey. If there was a hundred yards of involuntary suffering in nature, to me, uh, the predator component of that hundred yards is five yards. There's 95 yards of other involuntary suffering that causes more pain, more suffering, if you feel that in, in, the, in the ethos of pain and suffering. If, so if you're truly interested in reducing that, why would you not be interested in the 95 versus just the five? Well, here the idea is that um, it's not that we're talking about one controversial idea that we are not in favor of other less controversial. This isn't controversial, um, Stin. Come on. <laughs> um, so let's say diseases, vaccination. We are already vaccinating wild animals. Huh? Um, we are already helping dogs, for example, with um, against starvation and disease and things like that. Um, we, were, we mentioned uh, the parasites before, but the parasites is an easy thing. We are already treating humans against parasites and then dogs uh, against parasites and so on. Um, so these are not, um, I mean, in, in the biomedical research, a lot of has already been done about parasites and uh, the diseases from malaria and ticks and, and, and mosquitoes and, and um, viruses and bacteria, whatever, fungi. <laughs> um, um, so these are basically, um, politically speaking, easy targets and you can, uh, um, and yeah, they might also be the, the, the largest causes of death, perhaps, huh? like, um, um, but we also want to say, like, we can start doing research on this other, this five yards and 5%, um, let's say, um, suffering that we can have a solution mm -hmm. for that mm -hmm. sooner than later. Huh? Um, mm -hmm. When we will have a solution, when can we apply herbivorizing predators? Uh, I don't know, huh? but um, let's not postpone the research. Huh? Um, a thousand years ago, you can say like 95% of people were dying from starvation and 5% were dying from viruses, let's say. Huh? Um, so let's hope, yeah, okay, then they thought about how to increase food production. Huh? What they should have done is already start doing research about diseases, the viruses. Then we had the vaccine sooner. <laughs> they could have done the research back then. Um, so in that sense, um, it doesn't matter if it's only 5% of the problem or, or not. I mean, um, your, your, yeah, I get it. Your, your question reminded me of uh, another counter argument we, we, we face. Uh, we need suffering to help us grow. Uh, I would argue that it is not extreme involuntary suffering per se that helps us to grow. Instead, it is a hardship, trial, challenge, endeavor, enterprising, overcoming, heroism, adventure, and experience that help us to grow rather than suffering per se. And I know that at first the word suffering might seem synonymous with all those other words, but I, I don't think they are necessarily the same thing with, with words like challenge, difficulty, hardship, adventure. There is the possibility of redemption there. There are redeeming qualities, redeeming possibilities, ways out where you emerge a better, stronger person. You have a fighting chance. But for me, the word suffering or suffering in extremis, for me, does not have quite the same connotations. When I think of suffering, I think of being eaten alive, being immobilized and tortured, being driven to commit suicide, not being able to fight or flight or do anything because the situation renders the pain useless because you cannot fight or flight. And there is a difference between those two groups of situations with suffering. Mm -hmm. 
there's no hope, no chance, it's the end. Like Torch, for example, mm-hmm. you're strapped down, mm-hmm. tied down, can't move, you're completely immobilized, but you are in great pain. But with, with the pain, you want to fight or flight or save yourself or fight back somehow, but you cannot. So the pain is useless. It's just pure unpleasantness. Same with being mm-hmm. eaten alive by something bigger and stronger than you. There, there is no overcoming there. There is no chance of emerging a better, stronger, more superior person there unless you miraculously survive and you become like Jonah in the belly of the whale, but that, that's not likely. And, and witnesses to such things might be inspired to build better weapons or defenses or strategies and be inspired to become stronger and fitter so they could run away from the saber-toothed tiger that ate your friend. But that's no good to the friend who got mauled alive by the beast. So I'm all for challenge. Uh, you know, this is a challenge, being involved in suffering-focused ethics and suffering abolitionism and debating people, writing about it, being interviewed on podcasts about it, being involved in projects and communicating it to the masses who suffer so much and really don't like suffering all that much, I'm sure, but will still defend it and call us loonies. You know, all of this I, I enjoy greatly, you know, really. So I hope that makes sense. Well, um, well, I appreciate you, your time this morning, and I hope that... You feel like I gave you a fair a fair voice. Yes, you know, thanks for that. Absolutely, this is it was much appreciated. And I, yeah, and I think that's the point, right? And I think when people listen to this in the intro, I'll, I'll be talking about you know give you give it a listen. Uh, you may have a completely different viewpoint, and like I do, you know, obviously we stand on on opposite ends of of a spectrum. Um, but I think that ideas of suffering are are sort of places that we can both agree on it's it's a it's it just depends on the the degree of the gradient of suffering that we both believe in right mm-hmm. like from a hunting perspective i i practice and i do what i do and i train and to minimize the pain and suffering on that animal when i take its life mm-hmm. um to me, that is an ethos buried in hunting and hunting in the hunting community. Do we have a number of bad apples out there that don't respect wildlife? Absolutely. And they're the worst kind of people out there. Yeah. Um, so, no, I really appreciate you guys accepting the invitation. Yes. I appreciate um, the conversation. Hopefully, there's a lot of discussions amongst your listeners. <laughs> and uh, I look well, forward I'll to reading this. comments. <laughs> I'll say this number one. Uh, I think we proved that it's not a hoax. A lot of people were like, oh, is yes, this a yeah. hoax? <laughs> it's not I real, was like, yeah. oh, I don't think so. The other very prevalent question was, what have they been smoking? Um, <laughs> ah, well. Yeah, that's a secret. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly, exactly. Um, Anything to relieve suffering. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the, next, the next podcast could be about hallucinogenics and... and, and oh, I'd uh, love to talk about that. well listen uh i appreciate your time i really do i Thank appreciate you. the openness and conversation uh for me to ask you know just lay questions out there you answer them um and again i i really appreciate intelligent intellectual stimulating dialogue yes and i think too. the last Hour and twenty minutes has Especially been. Especially thanks for Europe for yeah, your openness and also the listeners. Um, it's nice to have these kind of, um, yeah, to have us on our on your uh, podcast. Um, that shows um, you're open to these things.
Oh, of course. No, it, it certainly could have denigrated into a shouting match. We were worried forth. about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 That could have been a good feeling, right? <laughs> yeah. I, I had a good feeling. I, I thought it, uh, it would be a positive experience, and it was. So I'm, I'm, thank you for that. Excellent. You guys have a yeah, wonderful day in England and in Belgium. Brilliant. Thank and you. we're just starting our day here. Yes. Uh, have a good have day. A good Take day. care. See you. Well, that's it for today. I appreciate you listening. As always, leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting.